Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. This show is produced by the Powell Group, the leading business consulting firm in the gaming industry. Visit us online at IndieGame.Business to learn about our online digital events. We have some amazing sessions with people in the gaming industry, and you can participate for free and purchase inexpensive passes to our industry-leading business-to-business system. Now, here we go, Indie Game Business. everybody my name is indy and that's mr uh, j powell with his european hat over there <laughs> powell <laughs> and welcome to indie game business i would also like to remind you jay and mason to on discord slide the volume down on each other so that, I, that way I it's do. not echoing and welcome to indie game business today we've got mason moreau from tripwire interactive and we are talking about your your games competition understanding it analyzing it jay had some great words of wisdom that he's probably not going to say but <laughs> welcome everybody we'll leave that for the outtakes okay. um mason uh, welcome to the show and you know i would say welcome back and apologize for anything that might go sideways because we haven't done this for a month um but tell us you know we're, we always want to start in the same place so tell us how you originally got into the industry and walk us through your career up to this point yeah for sure i mean first off thanks for having me super excited to to sit down and chat with you guys my start in the industry uh i guess where, where should i start i guess you know when i when i first started college i i studied uh i picked my major advertising and public relations um i think at the time i was kind of uh getting the idea that like video games PR and video game advertising was where I wanted to go. Uh, and so, you know, I just kind of kept working towards that while in college and then out of college, I uh, landed a job at a, at an accessories company called uh, control freak. I don't know if you've heard of them. They make these uh, attachable thumbsticks uh, on the controllers uh, where I started running the company's blog there, as well as doing some, some social and marketing and PR activities. Um, so that's kind of where I got my start. But then uh, uh, my current manager is someone who I used to work with at Control Freak. Uh, and so when there was a marketing opening uh, on the on the developer side of the gaming industry, you know, I, I sort of jumped at that opportunity. Uh, and, you know, the rest is history. Now I'm here. <laughs> so while I mean, there's a lot of things that go on, obviously, at a publishing company when it was regards to marketing, PR, social media, walk us through a bit of your day, you know, in handling marketing for a publishing company. For sure. Yeah. I, I think one thing that's, uh, that's, that can be unique about marketing sometimes is that the, the day kind of, uh, changes based on what's needed. So, you know, on, on one day I could be scheduling out some organic social posts, uh, and then spending the next half of the day like building a, a paid media campaign that goes along with those social posts uh and then you know another day we could be sitting down as a team and and putting together a go-to-market strategy for one of our new uh publishing titles uh or we could be meeting with an ad agency about a launch media campaign uh or you know it, i think it's it, it kind of varies based on what's needed it's a lot of uh it's a lot of planning and then execution and the planning stage is, is always much longer than the execution one. Um, but yeah, it kind of fits into one of those two buckets, planning or ex execution. Well, the planning is what we're here to talk about today. And so effectively what indie teams need to do to understand who else is out there in the market, who else is going to be there by the time they go to market. So where does one begin? 
when starting to evaluate the game, you know, how it's going to fit in, what's going to be competing against it, all of that when it comes to the marketplace. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the thing to do uh, when you, when you want to kind of evaluate your game as a competitor in a marketplace, which, you know, can, can be a very competitive marketplace, depending on the genre of your game is, is determine it's uh, USPs, which like may be familiar which is like unique selling points. Um, and from there, you're able to kind of uh, take it and, and develop some, some uh, frameworks for comparing it against the USPs of other games uh, and, and kind of determine whether or not it's something that would be attractive to the player that likes A, B, or C game as well. Uh, so yeah, starting out, uh, you really want to nail down some great uh, unique selling points for your game. Uh, and then you can start to uh, understand the US, or then after you do that, you can uh, start to determine the USPs that you believe are the, the ones for your game's stiffest competition. So, you know, over the last couple of weeks, I've been to two conferences and I've had roughly 30 games pitched to me in two days last week. So I see mm -hmm. a lot of these pitch decks and what, developers are putting in as USPs, what they're putting in as features. Really quickly, just what is the difference between a unique selling point and a feature of the game? I think uh, uh, a unique selling point versus a feature uh, is like a unique selling point is something that sets your game apart. Uh, a feature could be, uh, you know, that like if you're evaluating a multiplayer game, like it'll put a feature in that says there's, you know, a, a robust, you know, post-launch plan. Like that's a feature, but it's not necessarily a unique sell selling point because most multiplayer games nowadays do have a robust uh, sort of like post-launch plan for, for content or something like that. Uh, so I think that's kind of the key difference between what is a feature and what is a USP. Is a USP is specifically uh, targeted at helping you determine what sets your game apart. Uh, I, something that I kind of double back to a lot is uh, something I learned in uh, you know, some advertising classes is, you know, the, the, the store shelf uh, philosophy, I guess, is like, like when you're looking at putting a product into the market, uh, it's important to also kind of analyze how it's going to appear on the shelf next to all of the other products like it in the store, right? Uh, and that that kind of way of thinking extends all the way to to the uh, you know inner workings of your game and the design of your game and that kind of thing. Like, how is it going to stack up against the things that are just like it? All right, so that shelf philosophy is actually a really really good point, and it has had a major evolution in our industry. I mean, obviously, whether people realize it or not, back in the day when you had to go into a GameStop or a Best Buy or a Walmart, all of that shelf placement and exactly where the games were on the shelf was basically determined by how much the publisher or the distributor paid Walmart or GameStop. That's why you would go in some days and it would say our top 10 selling games and like four of them were blank because somebody had already bought that space, whether or not it was actually a top selling game or not. How does that, you know, when you're looking at a shelf, obviously your game box needs to stand out versus everything else. But how does that translate into digital? How would you take that theory to the next step and say, how are you making your game stand out on a platform where there aren't like shelves? For sure. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's kind of similar as uh, like, if you thought, if you think of steam or the Epic game store, or the PlayStation or Xbox marketplaces, like they're, they're also their own sort of digital uh, storefronts with that same type of visual uh, competition for real estate. Uh, so like how you make your game stand out, like a lot of those principles do carry over uh just in you, you, like say you're you're making a real-time strategy game uh and you realize that all of the real-time strategy games that are direct competitors to yours uh they didn't 
spend as much time as they could have on some uh, poppy key art, right? So like that is maybe something that you try to nail down as one of your USPs uh, because it will help your game stand out amongst the audience who is interested in that sort of thing. And so it, like it's, it's maybe not always something that's explicitly about the game or the gameplay that can be a USP. So what are some of the more practical, I want to drill down on USPs real quick and then we'll go back mm -hmm, to everything mm -hmm. else, but what are some of the more practical ways of sitting down and determining what your USPs are and like you said earlier, why it's not just a feature because you have a robust post-launch plan? Yeah, I think it's uh, the first thing that I do when, uh, when you know, a, a prospective published title uh, kind of hits my desk from from the, the publishing side of Tripwire is, uh, you know, we, we sit down and we determine like, a, what are the the direct competitors? Like, what are we up against? Uh, and what are the expectations for games in that space? Right. Um, and so when you determine who your direct competitors are, you'll it'll start to sort of materialize and you, you'll be able to see like, oh, amongst all of these games, like the, these ideas and these directions I'm taking this game are actually more unique. And sometimes USPs are discovered rather than planned or, uh, you know, kind of uh, intentionally placed there, right? Um, so I think the first thing practically to do to d help determine your product's USPs is understand the USPs, of, is to pick the competitors and start to analyze them which uh, like there, there are many frameworks uh, to, to kind of make sense of all of that. Cause sometimes it can be a lot of information. All right. So let's, let's use a practical example real quick. Right, so mm -hmm. did you work on the, the marketing launch and go to product for deceive? I did. Yes. Okay. All right. So mm -hmm. when first looking at this first, let everybody know what deceive Inc is because i do think it is a fairly unique place in the market and then we'll go into a little bit more practical stuff sure thing yeah uh so deceiving is uh it's a stealth-based extraction shooter uh that's that's very much focused on uh on hiding in plain sight and e extracting with an objective whether uh working with a team uh or going solo uh everyone plays as an agent who's dropped into a very large sprawling map and has to disguise themselves as NPCs and uh, and work their way through the the different sections of the map to get to the uh, the final extractable ob objective and then extract with it. Uh, so it's it's definitely a unique multiplayer game uh, when stacked up against a lot of the the typical multiplayer fare. Uh, right now you know like it, it's not that sort of action-packed i mean it does have a lot of action i, I don't want to sell it short um <laughs> but it's it, like uh it's it's definitely something that uh had a lot of usps when we when we evaluated it because it was uh kind of capitalizing a bit on the social deduction trend. It's got a, a flavor of that extraction shooter in there. And so there were all these kind of uh, buzzy genres that were mixing in uh, when we started evaluating it. All right. And so because of that, and this is very, mm -hmm. this is why I wanted to focus on on that game, not only because I knew you were familiar with it, but because it does have that, that indie feel. This is not tripwire made an action game where you drop into a map and there's 300 people and you all shoot each other and get weapons on the way in when you're dealing with something that is cross genre i mean we were talking about dave the diver you know before the show started mm -hmm. you know deceiving where you're blending social deduction versus multiplayer shooter versus extraction how do you go about determining the usps first and then we'll build through the go-to-market plan on it yeah, I think you uh, you kind of start with uh, with you know picking the most obvious things that are unique about the game, right? Is like if you feel like you're going to or like like your game has uh, a specific formula that uh, no other game has, then like you kind of need to to make some bullet points and explain why that is, and then. Uh, you'll have those bullet points, and then you take them and cross-reference them with with uh, what you've 
determined to be your competitors in the market. And that's when you start to actually see what is a USP, what is a thing amongst these bullet points of of things that my game has that none of these other games have or do in in this way before. All right. And so once you've got that broken down, and obviously with a game like this, it's going to come from multiple different genres. How is this different than Among Us versus how is this different from Escape from Tarkov or you know whatever the other genres are that is blending together are going to be? Mm-hmm. What goes into building that go-to-market plan with regards to your competition in the market and all that kind of good stuff? Yeah, so uh, the the thing that I've been employing since since we've been evaluating uh, titles in the uh, in Tripwire Presents our our publishing branch is uh, something called a SWOT analysis. Um, it stands for strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, which uh, are divided divided amongst intrinsic and extrinsic uh, sort of factors. So what I will do is I'll I will uh, I will build a SWOT analysis with all of the competitive titles. I will uh, kind of list out everything amongst all of the competitive games, all of their strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, and then kind of fill out uh, the the game that we're evaluating. And then it's a, it's kind of just this qualitative uh, speculative document that is a, a means of comparing and discovering what maybe the player's expectations for this genre of game could be, or the the market's expectations, I'd, I'd rather say. Because uh, like if, if, you know, there's one game that you're, that, that I'm evaluating and all of our comp titles, uh, or, you know, we feel like it's going to hit a Metacritic score of like 75, you know, and then all of the comp titles have a average uh, Steam review and Metascore of like 95, uh, then that's, you know, a bit of a red flag and we'll have to double back and say, uh, you know, it's something like we'll have to kind of evaluate how to why these games got 95s and uh, go from there. Right. So there's it's it's a way to sort of discover market expectations. All right. And so we've got a question coming up in the discord already. So how do you deal with USPs of a genre being a moving target where what you started as might become what a, a USP you started with might become commonplace during development? That's a really good question. Um, I think, you know, there there are there's only so much you can do especially if you've uh you know kind of begun development and and something comes out in the meantime um you know it like that's that's like a really a big decision is like whether or not you'd have to kind of go back to the drawing board and uh like i guess on the on the marketing end you know if if we saw a certain feature in a game that we are uh we're about to release uh becomes more commonplace in uh in the industry as a whole or in the in the market that this game is targeting uh you know we might kind of try and shift focus over to one of the other usps of the game uh because you know it it, the more usps you have you know the more nimble you can be when it comes to uh to developing and marketing and messaging of your game so aside from aside from the USPs, what else mm-hmm. goes into building that go-to-market strategy? The SWOT analysis is obviously part of it, but what else should you be looking at as you're planning ahead? For sure, yeah. I mean, So I think a lot of what I uh, sort of help our publishing team do alongside the, the green light evaluations before we sign a game, uh, and just after we sign the game, we do a lot of work to sort of determine the... Uh, the core audience of the game, right? Uh, and a lot of that discovery comes from, you know, doing some market research. Uh, social ads have actually been pretty beneficial in that regard uh, to, to kind of pick some some interest targets, see how they perform. Uh, and they're actually pretty cost effective. Like it, a, a lot of people, I think they think of paid advertising and they think they have to drop, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to, to do anything. Uh, but something we've discovered uh, here at Tripwire is that sometimes like a small paid social ad spend 
can be something that really helps as a market research tool. Uh, and it, like it could be something as as easy as dropping in a hundred dollars, you know, and picking picking the interest targets that you think uh, are are the core audience for your game, seeing whether or not that performs, uh, and you know, rinsing and repeating until you land on the audience that uh, that you really think is going to to respond to the game. Um, so I, I think yeah, there's that one part of it is determining the audience, and then you have to find out where the audience lives and how you're going to speak to them, right? Um, so a lot of what we do when we kind of develop a go-to-market plan for a game uh, is, you know, we look at the events calendar. We say, like, can we bring a playable to PAX or Gamescom? Or, you know, do we place a trailer in Summer Games Fest? Or do we think that this trailer would be better suited for something like a PC gaming show? Uh, something like that. So, like, it... It's a lot about uh, taking your development timeline and then advantageously placing uh, your marketing beats along the way. And that's something else that uh, that the SWOT analysis can kind of help you discover is like if all of your competitors had a marketing campaign that was, you know, real uh, kind of bing, bang, boom, like three months, like announcement to uh, release then maybe you shouldn't do a year long campaign like that. Those sorts of discoveries uh, are kind of how you start to build the go to market plan based on the, uh, the consumer expectations that you've, you've discovered through, through doing all of this research. So what, especially for indie devs, because we have mm -hmm. seen that timeline. It used to be for all games. It's like, you got to start marketing a year in advance. And now we see games getting marketed three months in advance or a month in advance. Where, what's that sweet spot for indie devs in terms of how far in advance you should be marketing it? Yeah, I think it's a, it, it's a case by case uh, sort of basis for sure. You know, like it, it's, um, like obviously if you're doing an early access launch then maybe you want to put some marketing dollars up against the the initial early access period uh and then you know a year later when you have your 1.0 release like you'll have another campaign there right um so like sometimes it's advantageous to to kick off a campaign a year before your release um but you know like the competition for uh for share of voice can be very, very hard sometimes. And uh, especially, you know, if you're going up against, like if you plan on releasing your game, uh, like up against any sort of giant AAA release where, you know, everyone's eyes are gonna be on those things, then maybe it's more advantageous to truncate your campaign and, uh, and really just focus on concentrating all of the beats that you had into a smaller window of time where you're just hitting everyone back and forth with, with a bunch of, uh, you know, awesome promo before the game comes out. And that, so, right, so yeah. oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No worries. Um, yeah, I guess it, like, it's really all about like what the game needs and what the market expectations, what you've discovered the market expectations are like, if, uh, if you're going to play in a space where all of your competitors have, uh, you know, year long marketing campaigns with trailers that feel like they were made by Steven Spielberg and stuff like that, like maybe you're not going to compete. Right. Uh, so like the, the, it's all about just determining like what is right for this particular game. And more often than not, if it's an indie game, then uh, a campaign that is, shorter and more active versus one that's based on uh, sort of drip feeding content uh, and building hype is is maybe the better way to go. All right, so it is absolutely perfectly timely that you bring up release dates because there was an article just this morning and that's what I was like, fear if you heard me typing, that's what I was looking up. Okay. This is not just an indie thing. This is triple A stuff too. So, mm -hmm. um, Starfield launches, I mean, announced their launch date, which was right in the window of Baldur's Gate 3. So right. then Larian, a couple of weeks ago, moved up the Baldur's Gate 3 launch to early August. 
and in return, uh, Stray Gods has moved their release date to avoid Baldur's Gate. And so as we get closer to Q4, these things start happening more and more and more. And, you know, the thing that I always tell indie devs is for God's sakes, do not launch in Q4. You're for sure. <laughs> you are destined to get buried if you do that. But it is important to, you know, keep an eye on what's going out because it's not only an indie dev problem. I mean, here you have major AAA games that are literally avoiding one another because they know that their demographics and their audiences are going to cross over and people are going to buy one or the other. And so, yeah, that was just a very, a very timely comment from, from you on that <laughs> one. Um, so with regards to, you mentioned understanding where your audience is, mm -hmm. which this is a constantly evolving thing. People that have listened to the podcast know I ask this question like every single time, but that's because it changes a lot. Where are people? What is, you know, demographic wise, what are the best social channels, the best marketing avenues to pursue right now for indie games? Yeah, I mean, I think the uh, the the base layer for any type of uh, like paid advertising is always going to be Google, uh, like Google display and, and uh, Google search. Uh, if you're if you're looking for somewhere to put marketing dollars uh, in a way that's going to perform and be meaningful and and have a lot of uh, of different options for uh, targeting the audience, uh, Google is is you know going to be that that base layer that that you should definitely consider. Uh, that being said, there are like uh, you know opportunities with. Uh, paid media sites like like IGN and stuff where you can pay for ads on uh, those platforms uh, that you know have been have been seen to to yield a return. Um, but I think it, it it's it kind of depends on what the game uh, is and who it's targeting. You know, if if you're making a game and you assume or you presume that your demographic skews younger, you know, maybe you're gonna want to to be active on TikTok and Instagram, right, uh, or and Snapchat, right, and like the the social platforms that are more uh, kind of skewing towards the younger demographic, right. Uh, if you are going more for some people who uh, who are a part of uh, niche communities, you know, maybe you should look at paying for Reddit ads and uh, even even Facebook and Twitter. Uh, you know, have have pretty good uh, baked in niche communities that uh, that skew a little bit older than the platforms I mentioned uh, for young people. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it, it's kind of uh, just kind of uh, about determining, you know, where are the people in my uh, sort of demographic and psychographic uh targets playing the most like what are they where are they spending the most time when they go online uh and picking those places right all right so i had a question to follow up and then you mentioned something and i have an even burning question one of the mm -hmm. places that i almost never hear people talk about promotion is snapchat so mm -hmm legitimately a good location to promote your game yeah i mean i think it's uh it's one of the more popularly used by uh by gen z uh so you know if you're if you're going to be advertising to you know a, an audience that uh maybe is into esports or into uh you know, uh, Fortnite, or if you're going to be advertising to an audience that is is more into, uh, or that that's very much falls into Gen Z, then I think Snapchat is definitely one to consider. Uh, and that's also something that, like, an agency, if you were to contract with one, uh, would would kind of put together a recommendation for. Uh, so, you know, I I think that it's something to absolutely consider but it's not like you 
have to if you don't see uh, a potential for a return there, right? Uh, yeah. Does that answer your uh, question? Yeah, no, no. It was yeah. It was just interesting because we that one, and, and you know, I'm Gen X, so I'm doing good to remember Snapchat even exists. You know, right? <laughs> right, right. So it's one that rarely gets popped up. All right. So all of that wonderful advice for the paid ads. Most indie teams don't have huge budgets. So when they're working with little to no marketing budget, where should they be doing their organic promotion? Yeah, so that's like, like if you asked me that before uh, May, I may have I may have had a different answer. Uh, but so now like there has been quite the shakeup um, on Twitter that's made it a little bit less attractive of a place to be uh, someone who, you know, doesn't have a bunch of money to pay for that gold check mark. Uh, it becomes a lot harder. It's become a lot harder to have your content organically circulate through Twitter when you don't have Twitter blue or you don't have uh, Twitter blue for business uh, and things like that. Uh, just as like a change that that company has done to, uh, to, help monetize a little bit more. So uh, I think that Twitter would have been my answer <laughs> before May. Um, but now, you know, it's it's a bit more of a of a loaded question uh, because there there are now new uh, platforms popping up like threads uh, that seem to be really powerful. And so like. Indie Game Business has one of the longest-running digital event series in the gaming industry with hundreds of publishers, investors, developers, and tech companies to meet with. All the sessions are always free to watch forever, and you can get a free pass to receive all the slide decks from all their speakers. The tickets for meetings start just at $50. Go to IndieGame.Business and use the code IGBPODCAST to get 20% off your ticket. I think that it, it that you definitely need to manage multiple uh, accounts, but with the volatility of of Twitter, you know, having it, it's been this this platform for indie devs to connect with their communities directly for so long, right? Um, that like I wouldn't necessarily recommend just not making a Twitter account for your game, uh, but echoing whatever you do on Twitter on Threads to kind of hedge your bets uh, and see if Threads makes things organically circulate a little bit more. Uh, would certainly be a good strategy. And on top of that, uh, you know, Discord is always a great place to to you know be adding people in and bringing people in. And if you ever bring a demo anywhere, I highly suggest that you throw a QR code somewhere uh, that lets people you know join your Discord. Um, you know, it, it it always seems to be the best place outside of uh, Twitter to to kind of rally a community around your game. And uh, you know, with Deceive Inc, we have like one of the the most fun and uh, like happy-go-lucky Discord communities, uh, and it like part of the reason the game is so good in my opinion is is because there are so many like active people in the Discord who want to who like throughout development wanted to give advice about how to make the game better and things like that, and so there's. Uh, there's that end to it as well, where like community management becomes very important from a QA side of things because you can start bringing people in and uh, you know, kind of doing a mini early access if that makes any sense. All right, so Calix has a question and it's very timely because Threads is new. <laughs> yeah, Threads and is very new. My experience on it so far is it's a bunch of Instagram people. I mean, like not. I don't mean that in a good way, like Instagram mm. models and, and folks mm. like that. And then memes, 
and it's like it's it's not quite there where it you can follow the right people my, i'm doing my own personal experiment with it and actually blocking anything that's remotely political to see if i can create a social media platform where i ain't got to deal with all that crap but for sure what are some of the what have some of the takeaways that you've seen so far from threads and how to approach that market versus uh, twitter and tiktok and instagram and everything else yeah i mean it, it's there's not really a science to threads yet like like you said it because it's so new um but i think playing there and and playing ball there in case there's something that that makes it uh into a platform where organic discovery is really at the forefront i think uh will kind of set you up for success like 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 i said earlier like hedging your bets you know it's it's kind of investing in the future of whatever this can be just because the social sentiment around it is so much more positive than its competitor um but then on top of that like like yeah maybe you don't spend a ton of time on threads just because it's so new right like it, the the potential audience for you to grow there maybe isn't as big as some other platforms um but yeah like kind of to that end uh tiktok's algorithm is probably the strongest when it comes to organic discoverability uh and that kind of thing and it it, it definitely uh has solidified its place as this uh platform where you know anyone can go viral on any day and you can you can make a post one day and because it had this in it means it's like me it means you wake up the next morning and it has 1.4 million views right uh so like TikTok is definitely a place where I would suggest any indie dev, if they understand that area, um, like goes in and, and, you know, you people really do like the sort of behind the scenes stuff. So it doesn't always have to be like, you know, you doing the latest TikTok dance or whatever. Maybe you can just share some inside look at what like indie game development looks like or something like that. Uh, and, you know, the, that type of content exists alongside the you know the more trendy stuff that people sometimes roll their eyes at well and to be clear when you're posting about what indie devs look what indie game development looks like it should not just be that gift from community of the room on fire with right. lover just standing there looking around because that is you know what what it is most of the time and for sure, for sure. our own community manager Pepster says, yeah, point of view content is, is huge on TikTok. And there aren't a lot of places, especially social media-wise and building community-wise, that you can share, hey, look, here's a behind-the-scenes look at our office during the day or whatever, have, what have you. And so those things do work well on TikTok. All right, next. I, I sort of, I've got clicking and I lost all my, my stuff. All right, so... Let's dive back to that SWOT analysis first, because for mm -hmm. when developers pitch games to me and I'm sitting there looking at the pitch deck, there's two things that I'm always looking for to see if they thought of. And one of them is the SWOT analysis. And the other one is marketing personas, because mm -hmm. I feel like if the dev has gone far enough to think through that, then they're obviously on the right road to a good launch. So SWOT analysis being strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, how do you go about starting that analysis and starting to plot those points yeah so it, it all starts with a conversation with the rest of the uh the team and the developers themselves uh about the uh the competitive titles right so what we're, what we're doing here is we're doing a swot analysis for our game and then picking five to seven games to compare it against right um so it it starts with uh with picking those five to seven games and being really realistic about that. Um, and then we kind of go through and SWAT our game and then do a SWAT analysis for each one of them. So that's, that's kind of where we, where we start out, uh, is, is really picking those, uh, competitive titles and being realistic about them. Uh, and you know, they, they don't always have to be, like something that ticks a whole bunch of boxes uh, compared to your game, but they do always have to be something that you feel like uh, your marketing personas are also playing, if that makes any sense. All right, and so then real quick to explain what a marketing persona is. 
So it's just the the sort of speculative idea or the speculative speculative uh, image of who your ideal player is. Uh, like, what do they what do they like? Uh, it, it, like, I've seen some that go all the way down to like, are they an iPhone or an Android user? You know, oh like it, it's like these types <laughs> of things where it's, uh, you know, we especially in performance based advertising. Uh, and and digital advertising, like a lot of times people just discover uh, a trait that is completely unrelated that, you know, like for some reason, iPhone users like the game more than Android users, you know? And it, so like there's all of this stuff that kind of just waits out in the ether for you to grab and then uh, put in. So you, like determining a marketing persona is saying like, okay, who is the person that's going to love playing my game? Uh, and what about their life sets them up to love it, right? I, I always relate it to imagine you're building D and D character sheets for your customers. Because, That's a very good metaphor. Yeah, yeah. It's it, it's literally okay. My customer is Jay. He works from home. He runs a small company. In the evenings, he sneaks off to play Diablo Four or whatever else but you can really get into it and the more thought and detail you put into that persona the easiest it's going to be the easier it's going to be to start defining out where you need to be on social media uh all right for sure Qu question coming in are there oh this is a good one are there any targeted player bases that read as a red flag for marketing Um, yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, like, I think where my mind goes with that question is like, um, you know, say, say your marketing persona is, uh, you know, people between the age of like 30 and 55, right? Let's just say, you know, we're, we're, we're making a game that's, uh, that's very heavy on, uh 90s nostalgia you know so people who were who were teenagers back in the 90s who are really going to like fall in love with something that it, that throws back to that right uh but say it's also a game that kind of requires uh a lot of time from the player to to complete right or to to play right uh well, that's a that's an age group that i would consider to have like the least amount of time for games right uh so if you're going to sell them, it's a hard sell to them on a game that's going to to request a lot of time from them because they probably are the demographic that uh, has the least amount of time to give to games, if that makes any sense. So it's it's that's sort of like where a red flag will start to pop up when it comes to to understanding the the player base you're trying to sell to is like if you are going to try and sell them something that is sort of antithetical to uh or that just doesn't fit into their daily life then uh you know that's where you kind of have to go back to the drawing board and say hey maybe like we should retool it so that it uh fits this person's lifestyle a little more which is interesting given that, you know, you would think, especially I'm going to call my, you know, I'm going to call myself, like I am the older demographic in this industry. <laughs> you would think RPGs, you know, that's going to be great. And then Baldur's Gate comes out this week and goes, expect to put 200 to 300 hours into this game. And I'm like, holy shit, I'll be playing this until my kid's in college. Um, right, exactly. But I'll still play it. It's all good. Uh, all right. So Marta from LinkedIn, what tools do you guys use to define what traits the persona has? Can you guide us through your process of getting to know what to put into that sheet? Yeah. So, I mean, there there are a lot of uh, tools. I mean, many of them are paid. Um, but, like, I think be as long as you've decided to, like, think about it, especially, like, if you were making a game, uh, and it's your game and it came from your head, then uh, it's a lot easier to sort of determine who's going to want to play it because they're going to be a lot like who you are. Uh, I, I, I feel like in, in many instances, right? Um, so there, there's that aspect of it. Uh, but I think in regards to tools that you can use, I mean, any social platform that you have 
will will give you some information about the uh, the your your following if you dive into kind of their analytics side of things. So you know if you have a Facebook page, then uh, and you you've registered it as a under a uh, Meta uh, business account, then you can dive into the analytics and see like okay how many of my followers are male, how many of my follows followers are uh, female, how many of them are unspecified, you know what's their age group. Um, and and that kind of thing, and and you can start to kind of understand the the baked in core audience uh, there, and then extrapolate from that. Um, so yeah, it, like grow, that's also why you know growing your organic social presence is pretty important because you start to have access to a lot of analytics uh, and and things like that. Uh, we use internally, we use a uh, a platform called a Hootsuite to manage all of our social channels. Uh, and within Hootsuite, there are a lot of uh, analytics as well that kind of give you uh, an idea of who's interacting with you online. Um, so yeah, I, those are those are some good tools. I mean, there's there's always stuff that's baked into to any of the analytics that you'll you'll use for you know maybe your website or uh, you know like I said your socials um, thing, things like that. It's just a matter of going and researching and diving into a lot of tables and and new pages on the platform because it is interesting because a lot of times you'll find that what you think is your demographic is not your demographic. I mean, a lot of people are they look at this show and the indie game business stuff and they assume, well, you know, Jay and his team are based in the U.S., so it must be very U.S. based. And if you look at our analytics, it's not. You know, we mm. have just as many much of an audience in europe and it literally goes around the world so it's a good thing to dive in there and figure out okay who is actually paying attention to my game um question from rick over on linkedin so how much influence does the marketing team have on the development team i mean that's a very good question rick um i i like we definitely like want to respect the creator of the game, right? Like, I don't think we have a, like, we have any interest in like jumping in and giving a whole bunch of design ch tips and requesting design changes and things like that. I think the, the influence that we have over a game's development is a lot more focused on, um, you know, how to strategically align the production timeline with the, the, beats in the go-to-market plan right and so if if uh you know a delay happens in and the production timeline needs to change uh then we'll go back to the the production team and say like okay we had this thing planned here so maybe uh you know should we still do this can we still do this I and mean, that kind of thing like i i think that like you there's definitely a uh a I don't I, like I, I keep thinking dance that you have to do with with marketing and production. But I, I feel like that uh, is maybe a bit like harsh. I can't think of another word. There's a dance that you have to do with, uh, you know, with your production and marketing teams uh, to, to get them working in tandem, you know, like, it, uh, you know, and, and start to sort of harmonize with one another. Right. And so it's it's a lot of working back and forth. I wouldn't necessarily call it. Uh, one team having control or sway over one another. Uh, rather, it's it's more uh, collaborative, where you sit down and say like, okay, uh, like how do we, given the circumstances, how do we put our best foot forward? It it is a dance. It's a very yeah, careful okay. dance, but it's a okay. dance where both sides need to listen to one another. A lot <laughs> of developers sure. will get very defensive when the marketing team comes in and says, "Well, we think you should do this." But, and not, I mean, I'm not going to say all the advice from marketing is always the best, but it's coming from somewhere with analytics and data and knowledge. And so you should at least listen and then civilly discuss it together to see what makes sense. Um, all right. So we have a very well-timed question from the Discord, which is going to lead into our next section anyway. Uh, 
But Deesa says, where do you look for competitive analysis like starts, stats, marketing demographics, et cetera? Because that's what we were going to talk about was how you start doing that competitive analysis and picking games that are appropriate competitors. For sure. Yeah, I think um, Steam Spy is definitely a really good uh, resource for any in indie developers. Uh, it's completely independently run. Uh, I think you, it, it just it costs a little bit to, to subscribe to their Patreon and then you have like full access to their entire database of the Steam library and they just have, uh, you know, an incredibly in-depth uh, data about uh, games that exist on Steam. And so if like when you've nailed down your competitors, like when, it, when we nailed down competitors, like one of the first things I do is go in and look uh, at their Steam Spy charts um and then on top of that uh twitch tracker is another uh free website that lets you monitor uh games performance on uh twitch which i also find to be really important uh when analyzing a game's uh competition in a marketplace because uh you know if if they're if it seems like it's going to be a game that performs super well on twitch but all of the competitors haven't performed super well on Twitch. That's one of the instances where the data kind of works against the intuition. Um, so yeah, uh, Steam Spy, Twitch Tracker, and then uh, kind of as I had mentioned before, uh, you know, like growing those social channels, diving into those analytics, uh, and understanding the the demographics there. So one of the big problems that I see with, with a lot of devs is they'll come in and they'll pitch a game and they're doing, you know, an RPG and one of their comparisons competitive in their competitive analysis is Zelda. And mm -hmm. I'm like, no. So right. <laughs> when, when looking at these games, what makes it an appropriate comparison versus something that's just AAA and it's not going to, you know, unless you spent $400 million making that game, how do you narrow the ones down that are truly your competitors and your peers versus something that maybe you were influenced by? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's definitely important to be fully uh, realistic when picking your competitors, right? Like obviously uh, if you pick, you know, one of the, the biggest name brands in the industry to co comp yourself against, it's not going to be very realistic uh, in terms of like uh, projecting the, the unit sales and just how much the game is going to perform. But if, uh, if you decide to pick your competitors and pick a whole bunch of other indie titles that uh, take heavy inspiration from Zelda as, as their RPG design, then that's when you start to sort of, uh, when the actual competition starts to materialize and maybe your expectations can can actually sort of be aligned with with what's realistic, right? Uh, yeah, I th that, does that answer the question? Yeah, I mean, so practically then, if your mm -hmm. game is, say you were influenced by Zelda, you don't put Zelda as your competitor or you know a, a similar title in the genre you want to use something like tunic which is right an indie game on an indie budget by an indie publisher but that was obviously you know as well inspired by zelda so yes exactly yes absolutely all right so next one up from youtube should indies looking for a publisher also develop their pitches to the level of analyzing the personas and does anything change if we're talking about free-to-play? Uh, I think, yeah, the answer to the first part of that question is is definitely yes. Um, I, I think it's it, it's really important just across every discipline in gaming to be thinking about the player who's going to be playing the game. Um, like, the, if you have that person in your mind, uh, then it's it's going to inform every decision you make and and... Uh, you know, hopefully be a decision you make that that brings joy to that person when it comes time to to actually experience your game. Um, and then I don't necessarily for the second part of the question, I don't think anything necessarily changes uh, 
if you're talking about free to play um i think that free to play is certainly a market that's uh that's full of a lot of stiff competition uh and that is that's something that uh should be taken into account when you're putting together a pitch deck or uh you know trying to to do a SWOT analysis and analyze your competitors um you know it, like a lot of games are free to play now a lot of games that are free to play are you know really really big uh so you know kind of going back to the last question or the the last topic we were just chatting about is you know you got to make sure you're being realistic about the free to play titles that you're uh you're picking to compare yourself against because if you're picking warzone and fortnite then obviously like the expectations are not going to be where they need to um but yeah i i, I don't think anything changes uh if you're talking about free to play i would say if anything it's more important on free to play because everything related to free to play success and marketing and user acquisition is so data driven i mean it For is a hundred percent spreadsheets and analysis so yeah if anything understanding that marketing persona is more important on free to play but it's also a little easier you know, it, as long as you know how to do the proper data science on a free to play game Mm -hmm. It's a little easier to figure it out because it will literally be spelled out in your analytics as to who your who your audience is. So, um, yeah, definitely more important. Um, all right. And so we got time for one or two more. This one is from our own Pepster. And I love this because, yes, my answer is yes. But for you, Mason, since we're talking about age groups, have you ever been pitched a game that's player base is 50 plus? Um, that's a very good question. Very funny question. I I don't think so. Uh, I yeah, I can't I can't think of one where where uh a developer has where I've like received a pitch deck and it's they've been like we are we're targeting the fifty plus demographic. Um, but I mean that's not to say that they aren't out there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You know, I like. You know, I I I'm anxiously awaiting the day where a pitch like that uh, blows my mind. So I think there's still a very big stigma against admitting that your player base is 50 plus. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it obviously for for a lot of these games it obviously is. And so and, you know, to prove my point, when we were starting to do casual games, 15. 20 years ago but before free to play came along when you like went to big fish and you bought a hidden object game or you bought a match three game and it was 20 bucks or whatever the well-known well-proven demographic was those games appealed to women 35 and older mm -hmm. those genres are still around it's been 15 20 years they're well over 50 in in many cases the other one the other genre that is very much the realm of the 50 plus gamer are and but aren't marketed that way are hardcore simulations. Um, mm -hmm. The majority of the people that play things like, you know, World of Tanks, World of Ships, World of Warships, the very detailed like the DCS flight simulators, the majority of those gamers are actually companies coming out they may be targeting their advertising to hit more of the 50 plus gamer but they're not coming out and point blank saying that they're they're targeting the 50 plus gamer for sure yeah that that totally makes sense um oh well no, no perhaps you're saying you know with, with thinking the gen x and millennials getting older the more games will be pushing towards older group um gen x here yes and, and we will verify that but at the same time Oh, wait, what? So, and this is AARP actually ran a series of study on 50 plus gamers. It really is an underserved market. If you have a link to that report, pop it in the Discord. I actually want to read it since I may or may not be getting to the age that I'm starting to get correspondence from uh, AARP. Um, all right, so next question. What to do as an indie when many comparables are clearly underpriced? Very good question. 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that uh, you can like you can do a few things. I think uh, what that communicates is that there is a misaligned expectation in terms of uh, value for a game in that space, right? Uh, like the uh, the the players are expecting or now expect to not pay a whole bunch of money for a certain uh, degree of, of content, right? Um, so, you know, if you feel like your game is going to have a lot more content than, uh, than games that are at that certain price point, then it's certainly worth looking at, you know, uh, bumping the price up a few dollars. But if you want to remain competitive with the games, uh, I mean, yeah, if you want to remain competitive with the the games that are in your uh, your competitive sort of wheelhouse, then it is important to kind of meet the expectation of the audience, uh, even though, you know, it, it may not feel like that's how valuable your game is. This actually, and this is how this can hurt you when you're pitching to publishers, because this came up several times with teams I met with last week. If you go and start telling me in that pitch deck that your game is going to launch at $4.99, you have to keep in mind, one, the golden rule of you can always lower a price on a game. You can't ever raise it. And so right. when you're dealing with so much of the volume of a game's unit sales, do come from steam sales or sales in general across these platforms how are you going to lower a 499 game and effectively make any money the other thing is you're causing that publisher to do a completely new realm of math on how many units are going to have to sell because they're going to have to sell a whole lot more units at 599 than they are at 1599 um it, it, it's it's one of those things that I never, ever, ever recommend developers aiming at a $5 price point. You know, it, in, in my mind, it should always be 15 or above, but yes, I do understand the $10 price, but you, you can effectively hamstring your pitch by coming in and saying you want to launch at $5.99. All right. Mace, thank you so much, man. This is awesome. On the on boots on the ground advice when you're doing this sort of stuff. We got one more question from Sharky Shark, and then we're going to roll out and wrap up. So what do you do when there are very few comparables, such as free, free to play CCGs out there, and most of them are AAA? Yeah, that's, that's also a very good question. Um, I think it's, it's something where, you know, you'll, you'll, that's something where you're almost certainly going to have to start pitching to a publisher uh, to to gain the resources that you'll need to to make any sort of splash in that marketplace, right? Um, like if you if you really if you try to go the self-published route uh, and you're competing with almost exclusively triple A's, uh, then it's you know it's it's a battle that you you might not win, um, and it, like I don't mean to be incredibly uh, like harsh when it comes to that, uh, but it's you know it's it's all about managing that expectation and being very realistic, uh, and and truly asking yourself if uh, the the competitive uh, landscape is only made up of triple A's or if there are some uh, you know scenarios in the past um that have been i guess like to re kind of re restate this here is like it's also important to look at other games in the market that weren't successful when you're analyzing or when you're trying to uh sort of determine how competitive your game is going to be right uh so like if you're looking at a game uh or if you're making this game and there's a bunch of triple A's that are directly competing with it, uh, 
then it might be important to look at some other indie titles that uh, tried to do what you were doing and uh, didn't and, and missed the mark in some way uh, so that you can kind of try to avoid those pitfalls as uh, you, your game materializes as well. And you like it's you, you never want to say never. Right. Because it, like there's there's always a Goldilocks zone uh, somewhere. Right. Uh, but you know, if 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 you're making a game and you feel like the competition is stacked against you, then the best thing you can do is just learn from, uh, you know, le- learn from the, uh, the experiences or learn from the stories of the launches of other games that tried to do what yours is doing and maybe didn't succeed. And I will say, it's not impossible you can place indie CCGs with publishers. I know this because I have done it recently. So it's not a complete lost cause. Um, but yeah, Mason, that's awesome, man. That was that wraps us up for the day. Any parting words, anything upcoming or updates that you want to promote, push from Tripwire in the meantime? Uh Nothing, nothing. I really, uh, I mean, like I'd, I'd love to plug our socials, you know, uh, if you want to follow along with what we're doing, definitely, uh, come, you know, join us, uh, at tripwire interactive on, uh, you know, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and, uh, and at play deceive Inc. If you want to follow along with some of the stuff that's happening on deceive Inc. We're doing a lot of fun stuff on, uh, the deceive Inc. socials right now. So, you know, would love for anyone to hop hop in and, you know, uh, play along with us. Uh, you know, we're, we, we love our communities here at Tripwire. So, you know, if you want to stop by, please do. Uh, but that's really all I'd have to plug. I really appreciate you guys having me. It was super fun. It's our pleasure. And y'all have done an immense amount to help us over the last year or two as well. So Dan. Yes, sir. Thank you so much, Tripwire. Tripwire. Tripwire presents for sponsoring indie game business. We do really appreciate you so much. We thank you, Mason, for coming on here. You guys join the Discord, discord.gg slash indie game business. Come on and hang out. Our next uh, indie game business conference is in September. That's coming so close. Don't tell me that. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, right, I right know it's coming up close. It's but next I week. I don't need to be reminded. Next week. <laughs> I'm not I'm not I'm not muted in the stream, just muted on Discord there, Miss Pebs. There we go. Now I'm not muted. So yeah, I don't need to tell people to join the Discord that are already in the Discord because they're in the Discord. So hey, meta. why don't you follow us on, on Twitch, twitch.tv slash indie game business? And we're also on YouTube and on LinkedIn. Thank you so much. We'll be back. We've got we've got three more broadcasts scheduled for Friday. Next Friday after that, the Friday after that, and the Friday after that. So stay tuned. All that stuff has been scheduled, and we're ready to roll. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Take it easy. Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at IndieGame.Business.